You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. And thank you again, worship team, and thank you, production team, as always. It's been a busy weekend for them. They had a worship uh, production workshop. Um, I think most of them have slept here this weekend because they, they've been here a lot. So thank you, team, so very, very much. And again, welcome. My name is Jay. To those of you who are watching, listening online, a welcome to you as well. And this morning, we continue on in our series in the study of the book of Nehemiah. And I just, I love this book. And it, uh, it has met me in some many defining moments in in my life. And uh, where we're going to go this morning reminded me of, of something that happened with, uh, with Jamie, my wife and I, earlier this year. I guess it was last year now. But last fall, we had the opportunity to go to, uh, to Maui for a week, which was epic. I, I, I love it there. If I could pick you up and our church and our collective lives and move to Maui, I'd think about it. I, I would think about that. <laughs> Some of you are saying, go for it. Let's do it. Let's go. Um, But that being said, we stayed over the weekend, and so we had the opportunity to go to church, and we went to a place where we've gone to church um, in previous years. Where we were staying was on Western Maui, just above where the, the fires happened with Lahaina Town and what have you. And this church that we've gone to um, meets at, on the grounds of the Ritz-Carlton, right? Suffering for Jesus there on the grounds of the Ritz-Carlton. You know, and everyone's in shorts and Hawaiian shirts, short sleeve shirts. It's, it's pretty fun. But, uh, but it's a video campus. It's a video campus of um, Harvest Church, which is based out of California. And it's called Kumulani Chapel. And so, you know, you worship live in person, you know, like those of us in the room are doing here. And then the, the pastor, usually Greg Glory, the, the, the founding pastor, lead pastor, um, then preaches. And so as we're sitting in the, the service, just getting ready for things to start, they have this formal time where they're greeting one another and, and they ask people who are guests to identify themselves. And what they'll do is come up and put this wood lay, wooden beads lay, you know, around your neck just to, just to welcome you to the, to the church. And I, I looked across and I, I, I did a double take as I saw someone doing this, greeting people, seating people, handing out these beaded lays. And I said, Jamie, that's great glory. And she said, really? And I said, yeah, it is. And the significance of that is the church that he pastors is a church of over 15,000 people. They have three campuses, and usually he's live at one of their California campuses. And, I mean, he, he walks by us and stuff, and, you know, I said, I'm a guest. You know, no, I didn't. Didn't, didn't. didn't do that. Thought about it, to be honest with you, but, but didn't do that. But I, I was just so appreciative and struck by this tremendous leader's humility. He's out there seating people, you know, greeting people, talking with people. There's nothing that identifies him as, hey, I'm Greg Laurie. And then he gets up to preach. He says, hi, I'm Greg. And then we're off to the races as he opens the word of God and preaches. And I thought, you know, someday when I grow up, I want to be like that. But it reminded me of, of Nehemiah. And the example of this amazing man of God as well. I mean, here's this man who basically gets promoted, right? If we follow the arc of the story of Nehemiah, even prior to the promotion, he, he gets this, this vision really from God 
to go and rebuild the, the walls of Jerusalem has, if you'll remember that, that time with the king where he's the cupbearer to the king, so he's always in the king's presence and the king recognizes he's down and depressed and struggling, asks him why. He talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and the king says, what do you want? Remember how all this goes? And, and, and so he says, I'd like to go back and rebuild the city, basically rebuild the walls. And the king blesses him. And in that moment, he, he, he promotes him to governor, sends him back with all this authority and responsibility and power and really privilege. And how Nehemiah handles that is so instructive and so significant for you and me. Question for you as, a, as we get ready to dive into this. How many of you in all your years of being in church community, and for some of you, you may be new to the community. Again, welcome. We're really glad you're here or watching or listening with us. But for those of us who have been around a while, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on how to handle success? Would you raise your hand? Do you think this is something we need to talk about? Because evidently we never do. I, I have, in all my years of being a Jesus follower, I have never heard a sermon about this. I've never preached a sermon about this. So this is kind of new ground for me too. But I'd like to look at this very deliberate compare and contrast that Nehemiah does in these handful of verses we're going to look at this morning between him and the previous governors through the lens of success. Because the common denominator between him and these previous leaders is they have been blessed with success, but how they handle it, what they do with it, is light years different from one another. So let me make a sale this morning. Some of you are going, this does not apply to me. Yet I would submit to you, it absolutely does. Who does not want, and we'll park with the definition of success is, and you know, over here for a minute, but who does not want to be successful in their life? Who does not want to be a successful employee or a successful boss or a successful parent or a successful husband or wife or a successful friend or a successful you fill in the blank? I mean, again, parking the definition of success, isn't that something we would all like to experience? And the answer is yes, of, of course it is. And some of you were there. Some of you, like Nehemiah, are in a positions of authority and leadership. You're a boss. You're a supervisor. You own a business. You're, you're, a, you're a teacher. You're, you're a parent. You're in some place where you have responsibility and influence. So this is very much in your wheelhouse as well. But really, the reality is all of us are in places of, of influence. There is someone watching our life. And so how we handle the blessings of God, the success that he gives us, really does, really does matter. And so some of you might be wondering, what is that thing on my wrist? I've already got a couple questions here this morning. It looks like a bicycle light off the back of a bicycle, right? But I'm in this um, health study through Kaiser that I'm going to be wearing this for the next couple weeks. And it basically tracks my movement and tracks some other things. And, and proverbially, we're going to take one of these monitors and we're going to tie it on to your heart and mind this morning. And we're going to see what's there. See what's behind our motives and our values as we look to and learn from this incredible example of, of Nehemiah. Because even if you're in a place where you don't feel real successful this morning, you're, you're in crisis, which I know some of you are. You're struggling, you're hurting. As we look at this through the lens of, of really what we've been looking at some of this amazing book through, as you're trying to rebuild your life, as you're trying to renew your hope, at some point, hopefully, you're going to begin to get momentum. So 
how are you going to handle it when that happens? I, I honestly think there's something here for every single one of us. So um, we're going to open to Nehemiah chapter 5. We're actually going to start with verse 14 and go through 19. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. And as I, as I read this to you, I want you to watch for what is one of the greatest threats to Nehemiah's success? Because it's one of the greatest threats to yours and mine. And it will reveal itself as we read this passage together. So here we go. I'll read this to you. Nehemiah chapter 14. More, or chapter 5 verse 14. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on the wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We didn't acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. And in spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. So, counterintuitively, what is one of the greatest threats to your success and mine? Success. How you and I will handle it. What we will do with it. One of the greatest threats to success are the temptations to misuse and abuse it. And in these verses, Nehemiah very deliberately does a compare and contrast between how he handled his success and how the previous leadership handled theirs. It says that the previous governors placed a heavy burden on the people. And one of the temptations of success that will come at you and me is to misuse our position. So a question for you. Who is the best boss you've ever had? You know what? Nehemiah's not the only one who got promoted. You're promoted, good man. I don't know to what, but you're all promoted. Thank you. Why are you laughing that I'm a good boss? That's a little, troub that's a little troubling. Okay, this one might be a little easier. Who's the worst boss you ever had? I repent, by the way, if it's me. But what's the common denominator? One of the common denominators between the two? How they used their position. Isn't that interesting? In the summers, when I would come home from school, I would um, uh, join this construction crew, and I was a construction laborer. And primarily, our responsibilities as laborers were to demolish things, which was really fun, and to clean up the job site. Basically, we were to do what we were asked to do. And I remember one of those summers, the, the superintendent on that job pulled me in shortly after I, I got there and started work that summer. And he said, yeah, you're going you're gonna to run errands for me. And I said, okay. 
And it started out as work errands. I mean, legit stuff, materials we needed for the job. So I would go do that. But one day, I'll never forget, he said, yeah, you're going to go here, you're going to go here, and you're going to go to the dry cleaners, and you're going to pick this up for me. And I thought, hmm, okay. So I ran the errands and went to the dry cleaners, and as I'm you know, picking up this guy's clothes, I'm beginning to think, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't have anything to do with my job or his. And that's what that role began to devolve into was I was his messenger boy. I was his errand guy. I went and, and did these things that were not a part of my job, not in my scope of responsibility. And when I began to very carefully talk to him about that, he made it really clear, you do what I tell you to do or you go find another job. A misuse of, of his position. But Nehemiah didn't do that. He didn't live like that. He didn't act like that. In fact, he points out that really that heavy burden was the money that was demanded from the people, the taxation, in addition to the food and wine that were allotted to that allotted to the governor. Um, Jamie and I, this last weekend, were at an estate sale. We sometimes frequent those. And we were at an estate sale of some folks who had been world travelers, and they had all these, all these great um, uh, books and what have you. And I'm looking at one of these books, and it's a book on currency in the Old and New Testament of the Bible. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I decided to do a little research on this. Is 40 shekels very much? And I began to look and read about that. And there's all sorts of variables that influence this, you know, when the money was minted, under what regime, and what the value was at a certain time. But pretty much what I learned from this and what I've learned from some other commentaries and resources that I've read is that 40 shekels was a lot of money, especially if you were poor. That this was a heavy burden. And yes, the governors had the authority to collect the food allowance from the people, but this was excessive. And this really is a picture of them profiting from the privileges that they had. Do you do that? Do you unnecessarily profit from the privileges that you have with whatever role you're in? Was it wise for Nehemiah when his own people are, are literally starving, as we learned from the, the passage last week? And by the way, if you haven't had a chance to listen to Matt's sermon, you've got to go back and listen to it. It was phenomenal, and it was so powerful, and that passage is so meaningful. And one of the things that was going on was the people were extorting one another and bribing and taking advantage of one another, and what ran through the middle of that was good old-fashioned greed. And so people are starving because they, they, they can't eat, so they're mortgaging their land, selling their kids into slavery or even themselves to pay their debts just so they can eat. Would it have been wise for Nehemiah as a leader in those kind of conditions to be asking for the food allowance like the previous governors? He could have, but he chose not to. He wasn't going to profit from the privileges that, that he rightfully had. And, and I think that's really, really powerful. But look at this. The earlier governors not only did that, the previous leadership and their assistants lorded it over the people. Now, here's a question for you. For those of you who know your Bibles, Old Testament to New, is it ever a positive description of leadership to lord it over those you lead? And the answer? No, it's never a good thing to lord something over someone else. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 5, one of the main instructions to elders, to, to us as leaders, is to not lord it over you because lordship 
is not leadership. And so they were abusing their power. You ever had that happen to you? Ever been on the receiving end of a boss or a supervisor or someone who you work for or someone in authority over you of any kind who has misused that power at your expense? I bet you have. I have. You've heard one of the stories. As a leader, as someone who is in a position of influence, do you abuse your power? Do, do, do I? You know, another vivid example of this for, for Jamie and I was we've recently um, discovered Monk. Anybody ever watched Monk? Old show, super old, but so funny. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's just a great show. And if you don't know the backstory, Monk is this, um, he's really a consultant. He used to be an officer. He used to be a detective. And, but for a number of reasons, many of them due to his OCD, he had to leave the force. But he's an amazing detective. He catches detail because of his OCD that no one else catches. And so they bring him in on the most difficult homicide cases, and inevitably he solves them. Because of his attention to detail, he just catches things, sees things that no one else does. And so in the episode we watched last night, this FBI agent comes in and they're teaming with the FBI on this one investigation and this FBI guy is, you just instantly do not like him as soon as he appears on the scene. Guy's a jerk and he misuses his power and that there's, there's one point in the, in the episode where he completely reads Monk the Riot Act. Monk hasn't done anything wrong. This guy is just showing off and abusing, misusing his power. He throws Monk off the case, humiliates him in front of everyone, literally makes him leave the crime scene and it ends up that Monk's the one who solves the murder and, you know, you could kind of see that one coming. But it was just like such a vivid picture of, you know what? I've had people like that in my life. And there's probably moments in my life where I have, unfortunately, misused power. And I don't want to live like that. And the good news is, you don't have to, and neither do I. We've looked at what not to do with success. So what do we do with it? What does... What is Nehemiah modeled to us? And one of the first things is he models this incredible reverence for God. And if we look back to last week, we look back to Matt's passage. Remember when Nehemiah necessarily is confronting the, the exploitation and the, the, the bribery that's going on and the greed that's going on among the people. He implores them, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? Because he did. He had this deepening reverence for God. You know, you think about it situationally, who does Nehemiah answer to? Functionally, no one. The king is a hundred miles away. As governor, he really is in a place of almost absolute power. He can levy as much taxes as he can possibly get away with. He can ask for whatever food allowance he really wants, and he doesn't live like that. Why? Because he remembers who put him in that place of success and power in the first place? Who was that? It was God. And I think there's something instructive for you and me. Because in our culture, with its emphasis on self and its broken focus on what you and I accomplish and, and taking credit for whatever success we have, we can fall into this bent, this line of thinking of, well, I deserve this. I'm entitled to this. I worked hard for this. This is owed to me. 
And yes, in fairness, we are to work hard and we are to serve others and give to others. And, and we are supposed to work hard at whatever we're involved in because that, that in itself is an act of worship. But that gets skewed to the point where we think that whatever success we have is all due to us. And it's all about us. You know, there's a reason, by way of example, in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, it says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Because what do we have a tendency to do? Think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And the bottom line is, the more you are impressed with God's power, the way Nehemiah was, the less you will be impressed with yours. We forget that God is the one who blesses us. And we think it's all about us. And we like to take all the credit. And Nehemiah didn't live like that or lead like that. But look what else. He devotes himself to the work on the wall. How many distractions has Nehemiah had coming at him just in the arc of the story to this point? A ton. Remember when he first arrives on the scene and he, he surveys everything and takes it all in and then he galvanizes and motivates and inspires the people and they begin working? There's this rise of the resistance that happens and all of a sudden they've got all these people from the surrounding nations who are trying to discourage them, threaten them. They threaten to attack them, to kill them. And it's actually going to get worse when they complete the wall, which is what we'll look at next week. The resistance actually intensifies. They have all these reasons to be distracted, and Nehemiah refuses to let it happen. Even having to stop work, presumably, with what we looked at last week, or at least it slowed it down, having to steer into corruption and greed in his own people. And yet he refuses to be distracted from what God has called him to do. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? Many years ago, before I came to Grace, I read this book that was so informative and impactful to me. It was written by a guy by the name of Erwin McManus. It was called Unstoppable Force. And he talked about some of the very realities we're talking about. And he said, okay, as the church, as a community, one of the greatest threats to our success is success because once you get to a point where you start growing things are going good you can be very tempted to glide and lose focus we can become distracted not from building walls but from building the kingdom of god how many churches are busy there's lots going on but are disciples being made are lives being changed? Are people being introduced to Jesus? Is the kingdom of God being brought because where there's brokenness and we can do something about it, we do as the church? That's what we're called to do in the name of Jesus? What were Jesus' last recorded words to his followers? Glad you asked. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and what? Be busy. No, make disciples. Be busy with making disciples. One of the greatest threats to our present and our future as a church family is that we will become distracted from what we are called to be and do with good things, legit things, but not the main thing. And so I've told you in this season, we feel really strongly as a leadership, we are being called to grow deeper in Jesus 
more than ever before and to go wider with the Jesus story more than ever before. Evangelism and discipleship. Tell the Jesus story, live the Jesus story. To the point that the staff and I are going away with the blessing of the elders this next, well, I guess we are here, this month in a couple weeks to devote two days to looking at what does this tangibly mean? If we define discipleship as being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing what Jesus did, then what does that look like with our resources and our programming and our time? And are we keeping the main thing the main thing? I think in many ways we are, but how can we do this even more impactfully, even more significantly. We're going to spend two days praying and seeking the Lord together and then hopefully hearing from the Lord and making sure we're directing our energies to this. Because this this is what we're about. And it's what Nehemiah was about, doing what God had set before him. And man, the way he does it, it's so distinctive and so impactful. Twice in these verses we read, he says, I did not take the food allotted to the governor. Okay, well, why does that matter? Because he was determined to set the example. Which brings us to you and me. Too many of us devalue and minimize our influence. You may be hearing this this morning thinking, well, I'm not in a position of leadership. I'm not in a position of responsibility. I'm not in a place where I influence people. Ah, contraire, mon frere, as the saying goes. That is absolutely not true. It's not. Years ago, when I was in student ministry, we would tell our students over and over again, you may be the only Jesus follower someone knows. There is someone watching your life, so therefore it matters how you live your life. You are to be the one, you are to be the one who sets the example. And that may sound like pressure. I think it's exactly the opposite. It's opportunity. With what God blesses you and me with, let's be a blessing to others. Determined to set the example by how you live your life. To live a godly life. To to live a righteous life, which is really what we see exampled here in Nehemiah. Look at this. This specificity matters. When he talks about not taking the food allowance, but being the one who gives the food and distributes the food. Look at all the people he feeds, 150 Jews. And there was this expectation that anyone who came from surrounding nations, especially folks in leadership or places of responsibility, you as the governor were to entertain them, to provide for them. So we don't really know how many people this is, but this is what we do know, is this is the food that was prepared. One ox, six choice sheep, some poultry, 10 days, every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine, cheesecake. Okay, that's not in there. But that's a lot of food. In fact, in one of my study notes, it says that was food for approximately 400 to 600 people when you factor in all that that represents. That's a lot of food. And whose pocket is that coming out of? Nehemiah's. Now, in fairness, he had to have incredible means to do that. I mean, he obviously had access to some wealth. That's why he was able to not functionally take the food allowance. But don't get stuck on that. He blessed because he had been blessed. And see, what you and I are tempted to do because our broken culture encourages us to is to look at our lives through this scarcity mentality of what don't I have? What's going wrong? I could never do that. Okay, well, what do you have? 
How has God blessed you? And how can you use that to be a blessing to others? Because so often the blessing stops with us. We get blessed and we go, oh, well, you know, that's the way it should be. Okay, yes, God wants to bless your life and mine, but he blesses us to be a blessing to others. It's not just all about me. And it's not just all about you. So you and I look at our lives through what has God given us. We look at our lives as a church family. What has God given us so that we can in turn bless other people? This is about developing a deep love for people. I mean, let's think about this critically for a minute. You know, yes, there were officials and dignitaries who ate at his table, but the majority of the people there were just ordinary people like you and me. What did Nehemiah owe them? Did they deserve to eat at his table? Presumably not. I mean, you think about these people. They have problems. Most of them. No, all of them. Matt helped us do an honest self-assessment last week. Matt's got problems. Amen. Amen. (laughs) I got problems. Amen. And so do you. And so you look at these people who are bickering and fighting and taking advantage of one another and exploiting one another and bribing one another and selling their children into slavery because they can't pay their debts and they're doing this to each other. Is that who you want at your table? Yet no. And yet Nehemiah loved them. Many of them did eat at his table. Which is so compelling to me because this is such a beautiful picture of what biblical justice, biblical righteousness really is is all about. It's disadvantaging yourself for the sake of who the culture would say is the worthless person. It is the giving up of your ease and your comfort in order to bless someone else. Someone who will not benefit you. Someone who you may never get credit for. Someone who everyone else overlooks, but not you. And not me. Because that's what we're called to be as a community. Is to be willing to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of who our culture would say, ah, that's not someone you should be doing anything for. You shouldn't be blessing that person. You're going to get nothing out of that. You don't owe them anything. They're not your concern. They're not your responsibility. Yes, they are. Because as we bring the kingdom, if we're living the way Jesus lived, if we're doing what Jesus did, we will look around and where we see brokenness and the opportunity to do something about it, we will. To people who don't deserve it. To people who will never thank us. To people who won't personally benefit us. People who have no power or no ability to influence or, you know, who aren't ever going to pay us back. Yeah, that's exactly the people who we love. I wish I could do that. Don't you? Don't you wish you could live like that? Don't you wish you could live like this? And you know where I'm going with this. You can. Why? Because it's what's been done for you and for me. I was reminded of this in my own reading of Romans chapter 5, 6 through 8. I, I was so impacted by this, and I've, I've known about this verse in this passage for a long time, but I've, I'm in the process of memorizing it. I don't want to mess it up, so I'm going to read it, because I'm still early on here. But look at the perspective here. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we read that sometimes, go, oh yeah, that's great. No, it's more than just, yeah, that's great. That is life-changing. When we could do nothing for Jesus, owing us nothing, having everything because he's the God of the universe, he literally gives up and sacrifices his life on your behalf and mine in order to love us, in order to bring us into his kingdom. You and I could never repay that, and we certainly didn't earn it. And what this reminds us is God sees us on our worst day and still loves us. So where we're going with this is, do you know why you and I can live this way? We can develop a deeper love for people than we have. We can disadvantage ourselves for the sake of someone who will never be able to pay us back, who probably doesn't deserve it, and who will probably never thank us. Do you know how we can love and live like that? Because we've been loved like that. Do you believe that? I, I hope you do. Jamie and I had the opportunity to go to a, a play. She's, God bless my wife, she's still trying to enculturate me after all these years. And we went to uh, The Lion King, and uh, it was okay. No, it was really good. It was. It was extremely well done. And, you know, if you've seen The Lion King, you know the story. I know the story. It's not a new story, but it's an impactful story every single time. And really, the defining moment is when he is completely, Simba, lost his identity, and he is settling for a life that is far less than what he ever should have settled for. And it's broken, and he's not living his potential and, and who he's been created to be. And then his dad shows up, and how they did that in the play was super cool. But his dad shows up and basically calls him back to his identity. And you know how the story ends. He remembers who he is. He goes back. He becomes the leader that he was intended to be. He lives the life he was created to live. It's compelling. It's, it's great. And I thought, you know, how often am I like that? How often do I forget who I am as a son of God? Excuse me, as a a son of the Son of God, <laughs> as his child. I forget how he's loved me. I forget what he's done for me. I lose sight of the fact that he's with me, that through his Holy Spirit, he never leaves me, although I live like it at times. But how often do we forget who we really are? In this culture where everyone is scurrying and so frantically crafting and curating and defending and creating this identity when Jesus is the only one who will give you an, an identity that isn't achieved, it is received. And it never changes. And it's a life-changing identity. And some of you aren't experiencing these realities that we're talking about. Some of you aren't living like this because, quite frankly, you've forgotten who you are in Jesus. And communion is, is really one of those defining moments for us where we remember who we are. We remember who he is. We remember who we are. And you remember who you are. And so I'm going to invite our, our communion servers to come forward. And we're going to get these elements ready for you.
as you come forward this morning to receive communion, please take it and, and then go back to your seat like you normally do for those of you who worship here with us and hold on to it because we will celebrate this together. For those of you watching, listening online, this is a really good time for you to gather with other, whatever elements you can in order to celebrate this with us. And worship team, please come. And, and communion is a reminder that we have a God who loves us to the point that he would sacrifice himself for us to rescue us from an empty life, to, to give us a life that is truly life, to bless us so we can be a blessing to others, to give us hope and purpose and joy in a present and a future. Communion declares all these things. So when you come forward, you're not just receiving these elements. You're saying, I want that. I want Jesus in my life. And I can't think of a better time if you haven't received him into your life to do so this morning before we take communion. Because quite frankly, if you don't know the Lord, this, this really doesn't mean much. But if you know the Lord, it means everything. It reminds us of who this God is, who we are, and what he's done for us. So, so let me pray over all of us here. Lord, for those of us who know you, who have made that defining moment decision to receive you into our lives. These elements remind us that you have sacrificed your life to give us a life of blessing and purpose and hope. Lord, thank you that you forgive us of our, of our sins, of our selfishness. And Lord, even now in these moments, before we come forward to receive these elements, would we think and listen to your Holy Spirit and if there's any areas where we have wronged you, wronged ourselves, wronged others, just between you and us, that we would call that what it is right now. And Lord, thank you that we're not defined by those choices or even those consequences. Our identity is sourced and rooted in you. And so as we come forward to receive these elements, we are saying we want you, Jesus. We want to trust you and obey you and follow you. We want to turn from those things that are broken, that are selfish, and turn to you as the author and perfecter of our faith. And Lord, for anyone here who's watching or listening who has not made that defining moment decision to receive you into their lives, would they do so this morning? Would they just say between you and them, Jesus, I receive you into my life. I choose to believe you. And I thank you that you will never leave me and that you will always be with me. So, Lord, would you continue to do your work in each one of our hearts and lives? Would you help us to settle for nothing less than loving you and loving one another and living on your terms and not ours? And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So come forward and receive these elements. What we are about to celebrate and remember together has been practiced by, by Jesus followers for literally thousands of years. And communion really has its roots in that last supper that Jesus had the night before his death, burial, and resurrection. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This 
is my body. Let's remember his body together. And then it says he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to all of them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's remember this together, too. Lord, we thank you to be able to gather together as your body, as your community, as your people, and to remember who you are and who we are. Lord, thank you that the identity that you give us, the hope and purpose and joy that you give us never changes. It is always ours to have as we trust and obey you and believe you for what you say. Lord, I thank you for this church family that loves you. And again, I would pray for anyone who has not yet chosen to follow you as their Lord and Savior, that they would do so. And for those that have here this morning, we pray that you would bless them now with the rich intimacy and presence that only comes from knowing you as the one true God. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, one of the good traditions that we have as a church family is that uh, we pool our resources as an act of worship. And we already took one offering this morning, and those resources go to our mission and vision and really source everything that, that we do. But when we celebrate communion together, we take a second offering. And these resources that we're about to collect, um, we use to help folks who find themselves in a difficult place. So these resources literally put food on the table. They, they do car repairs. They pay medical bills. They keep the lights on literally for people. They turn the water back on for people who have found themselves in that place. So thank you for your generosity as a church family. Our ushers are going to come forward and receive this offering, and we're going to continue to worship together. Believe that because we're about to go live it. Because we are fighting a battle that he has won. And we know how the story ends, but it's still a battle. And sometimes it's really hard. And so as I was thinking about, you know, what do I send us out the door with this morning? I was reminded of the passage that, that we read this morning. You see, before we... Before most of you get here and before we start the services, we meet as a worship and production team and we, we spend time praying for you. We've already prayed for you this morning and we pray for our time. And I try to bring a word from the Lord, from his, from his word rather, um, that just kind of points us with where we're headed this morning. So I'd like to leave you with that same passage. I think it's, I think it's just so necessary. So for those of you who are familiar with the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, it's kind of like the hall of fame of faith. And it lists all these men and women of faith who have gone before us and who have loved the Lord and followed the Lord and been faithful to the Lord and fought the battle, even when it's hard. And so with this inspiring um, list of names, the writer of Hebrews now is going to make it feel like we're in this stadium when we're running a race. And all these people are in the stands who have gone before us. All these godly men and women. And I like to think of Nehemiah being one of those who are cheering us on. So capture this image as we prepare to go from here in the reality that we go with our God as well. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off 
everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Lord, as we go from here, would we tell the Jesus story? Would we live the Jesus story? Would we love people the way you have first loved us? And would we be willing to disadvantage ourselves to serve and love and give to someone who probably doesn't deserve it, won't thank us for it, and that we won't get credit for it? But you will see that. And you count that as success. And that is the life that you call us to. So help us remember who we are, remember who you are, remember who we are as we go from here, because you are the light of the world. So would we run the race? And we ask this in your name. Amen. So go run the race and live for him. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.